Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. Hey, Founder Fam, before we dive into another incredible conversation, I want to share something really special with you. Whether you're just joining us or you've been following us since the beginning, you've been a critical part of our community working to change entrepreneurial education. I started Founder almost a decade ago with the mission to provide entrepreneurs access to the world's greatest business leaders. Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond, and today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back, check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education, and our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interview to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amorosa, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey, Founder fam. Welcome back to another Founder Podcast. Today's guest is an absolute e-commerce legend. Harley Finkelstein is the president of Shopify, one of the largest e-commerce platforms in the world. And today you're going to discover so much about his journey, including starting his first business at 17, how his degree in law has really shaped his viewpoint as an investor, entrepreneur, and president. Please welcome to the show, Harley Finkelstein. The first question that I ask everyone that comes on, Harley, is how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? I started before I joined Shopify. I was one of the first merchants at Shopify. When I, um, I've been an entrepreneur for most of my life, I'm sure we'll get into that. But 
Um, when I was, when I finished uh, college, I had built this t-shirt business and a mentor of mine convinced me to go to law school uh, after college, not to become a lawyer, but to become a better entrepreneur. And so I moved to this place I'd never been called Ottawa, Canada, the capital of, of, of the country in Canada. And I met Toby and uh, I became one of the first merchants on the Shopify platform. And that was about, um, I don't know, 15 years ago. And then a couple of years later, I joined, uh, I joined him in 2009 and I started a sort of um, business development plus, you know, the general counsel, the lawyer of the, of the business. Uh, I became chief platform officer and then chief operating officer. And, uh, and I'm really proud to say today I'm the president of Shopify. Yeah. Wow. You've had an incredible journey. I know you're a, you're a dragon on um, Dragon's Den, like the, the shark tank um, in, in Canada. And I'm really curious, just if we could go back to that t-shirt business and the journey there, what was that like? What was e-commerce like back then? So I launched my e-commerce site in 2006, I believe. Um, I was store 137 or so, or something like that in that range on Shopify. And really the business was really simple because first of all, the concept of drop shipping didn't exist. So there was no way to fulfill your orders directly from the manufacturing facility to the end consumer, you actually had to hold inventory. So effectively your capital was split between two things. One was inventory, but the second was marketing. And in sort of that 2006 to 2000, I guess, nine or 10 kind of era, it was mostly AdWords. Um, Facebook did not have an ad platform at that point. And the truth is, if you were clever with AdWords and you were clever with keywords, you, you would be able to um, buy up most of the keywords in your category for a very reasonable price. And that t-shirt business that I had, it was predominantly a, a licensed t-shirt business. So we didn't have enough money to buy the rights to like Batman or Spider-Man globally, but we could buy limited rights. So we would buy the rights to the Dark Knight Batman movie in a particular geographic region. It was very, it wasn't inexpensive, but it was far less expensive than buying it for Canada or buying it for North America or buying it for the world. And so what I would then do is I would think about, okay, I, I probably cannot, cannot afford to buy the ad word or the keyword for Batman, but what if I targeted, uh, you know, Dark Knight uh, movie Canada? And this way, anyone that was searching for movie times on Google at that point um, that want to see The Dark Knight, meaning they had some intent or interest in that particular brand, my t-shirt shop would, would, would come up first. And it was just me. Uh, so I would print the t-shirts. Uh, I would negotiate the licensing rights. I would uh, ship out the t-shirts. I would do customer service. I would update the website. And it was a lot of fun. I, I loved it. Um, you know, some of my classmates in law school uh, who I've, I've, I've since, you know, spoken to about this in recent years said that they always thought I was distracted in law school. And I wasn't distracted. I just, I went to law school for a different purpose than they did. I went to law school to become an entre a better entrepreneur. I went to law school to acquire a set of skills, not simply to get a law degree to go get a big job at some big law firm. And so um, those early days of selling t-shirts, um, I remember with, with incredible, uh, with, it was, you know, I look back on those days very fondly. It was an exciting time. And e-commerce at that point was probably 2%, maybe 1% of total retail, whereas now it's closer to 15%, uh, you know, depending on what country you're in, but anywhere from 12 to, you know, 15% or so in China, it's close to 50, 50%. Um, but it was the early days of e-commerce and most people were still apprehensive to even use a credit card at that point uh, on an online store. So 
it was sort of the wild west. Yeah. And how far did you take that business? Um, not very far. It was, it was a good business because it allowed me to, you know, I've always sort of thought about entrepreneurial ventures or business ventures as, as um, it's important to sort of know why you're doing it. Um, you know, Simon Sinek talks about, you know, finding your why, but, but your why isn't always something deeply passionate or uh, based on deep curiosity. For me, the reason that I started the business was because I needed to support myself and my mom and my two much younger sisters. My dad wasn't around for that period of my life. And so that business accomplished the goal of putting food on the table, paying for school, helping my mom and sisters, putting them uh, through private school. They were much younger than me. And, um, and so when I, when I finished school uh, around 2008, I went out to Toronto. I practiced law for 10 months because you're supposed to practice law after you graduate uh, to what's called articles to get called to the bar to officially be a lawyer. And, uh, you know, so it's a 10 month process. And I think by like month two, I realized that there was no way I was going to stay longer than the 10 month period. And I called Toby, uh, the founder and CEO of Shopify and said, I want to join you and help you build this company. So it was never a huge company, but it did exactly what it needed to do, which was it allowed me to survive. Yeah, that's awesome. It sounds like a great lifestyle business. And I've heard about those early AdWords days where it's like one cent a click. It would have been just absolute arbitrage, right? It totally was arbitrage. And the larger companies had not yet incorporated that practice into their own businesses. So Marvel or DC or Disney or any of the big major, you know, um, license holders or big companies, they had not really caught on to AdWords at that point. Whereas I was on Google trends, looking up anything I could, I was running reports, doing AB testing, which even those days made it, it was really easy to do on Shopify. But for me, you know, if I sort of go back, much earlier on in my life, um, when I was 13 years old, I wanted to be a DJ. Nobody would hire me. And so I created my own DJ company and hired myself. And that DJ company, we did like, and I DJ like 500 parties, but never made a lot of money. But it didn't matter what that first early experience in entrepreneurship did for me, which I, I think so many of your, your, your viewers and, and, and your readers will, will appreciate is entrepreneurship always felt like this incredible tool in my tool belt to solve problems, whether it was because I wanted to do something and no one would allow me to, I sort of took it on my own, or it was to afford tuition or helping my family. And I think in that way, entrepreneurship is the greatest equalizer on the planet because it allows for autonomy. It allows for people to um, not ask for permission, but simply to take and to build. And I think that's it's really cool. Yeah, I agree. There's something very fun about building uh, and creating. And I was talking to someone else like entrepreneurs are modern day artists and they just got a blank canvas. That's how we all start. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's also, you know, you, you, you know, I listen to the podcast and, 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 you know, read founder. So I, I know you, you do these amazing interviews, but one of the things I think that is still not there yet is that the concept of entrepreneurship, I think still remains out of touch or out of, um, out of reach to most people, that most people that don't know an entrepreneur that didn't grow up in a family that thought entrepreneurship was a real thing um, or didn't have a mentor or a neighbor who you know, owned a little small business, most people still believe that entrepreneurship is, is not accessible to them because it's too expensive or it's too complicated or you know, they don't have the right to participate. And I, I think that is 
that's what, you know, that's my life's work. My life's work is encouraging more people to try their hand at entrepreneurship, whether it's to build a big company like Shopify, which is now publicly traded, of course, or it's simply because, you know, my wife started an ice cream shop, a little ice cream shop here in town, in our, in our, uh, in our city here in Ottawa, because when we had our first child, she wanted to take Bailey uh, for ice cream and there was no ice cream shop in the neighborhood. And so she started an ice cream shop because she wanted to solve a problem and the ice cream shop became really successful. That I think is an amazing thing. But, you know, I, I think even for my wife, there was a little bit of apprehension that, well, I don't know how to do this. I'm not really sure where this is going to go. And, and, and I take no credit for her, her ice cream shop success, but I certainly did remind her that most entrepreneurs, when they get started, have no idea what they're doing. And that the cost of failure today is about as low as it's ever been in starting a business. Um, and that's really cool. Yeah. Look, I, I really resonate with, with your mission and vision. It's, it's not too dissimilar from founders. Um, I'm really curious before we jump into the Shopify journey, you said something that was interesting to me. You said the skills that you acquired that, that you got from your law degree. I'd love to talk about that because that is not so much a traditional path for a lot of entrepreneurs. Like what did you acquire when you, and what did you learn? Like I, I hear like speak to a lot of founders and, and, you know, uh, university degrees are for them a waste of time. I took a different approach uh, to education generally. I felt that when I when I paid my tuition, the university, the college, whatever academic institution you're you're, you're attending, they owed me a debt. Um, if I paid them, you know, my, I think my college. I went to McGill University in Montreal initially. I think my initial tuition was a couple thousand dollars. I demanded. Um, I didn't say this to them, but in my own mind, that they were to compensate me um, with that amount of value. And when I went to law school, the same sort of thing. Law school was much more expensive. I think it was fifteen thousand dollars a year, which, you know, for me supporting myself at twenty-one years old, it was a great deal of money. But I felt like I'm giving you this money, you know, college, university, law school. I expect a greater than or equal amount of value in return. And so I think a lot of my friends, my classmates, you know, uh, their goal in university and college and, and, and graduate school, if they went, was to do well on an exam because ultimately they needed a good grade because ultimately they needed that piece of paper, that, that certificate, that degree, because ultimately they had to get a job with it. But I was never going to have a traditional job. It just was never in my mindset. It was never in my, my life's plan. So I didn't care how I did in the exam. What I cared about is how much insight, information, knowledge, experience, um, what is the return on my investment, which is my tuition. And so in law school, for example, one of the things that was incredibly valuable was you have to write a ton. I mean, you're constantly writing. And I, I went to a, a decent public high school uh, in South Florida, which is, uh, I was born in Montreal in Canada, but I grew up in South Florida. I went to a good public high school, but I, did, I wasn't a great writer. In college at McGill, I didn't write very much. So law school was this great opportunity. I'm going to really understand how to write well, concisely, deliberately, no superfluous words if, if it's unnecessary. Um, and, and so that was the first thing. Writing was really valuable. The second thing that I thought was really important, uh, and you, you know, you run a business too, so you'll appreciate this. In law school, you'd be given these massive cases, these like 3,000 page cases to review. 
And then the professor the following day would say, or the following month would say, because they give you some time to read these. Okay, 3,000 page case. What is the summary of the case? And that was like a puzzle because now you have to sift through, you know, pretty much 2,999 pages to get the one page that matters. And the ability to sift through so much information and data and pick out the thing that matters most, that was incredibly valuable. And law school did that. And maybe the third thing was debate. Um, I, I debated a bit in high school and I was in the debate club in college. I didn't do very much of that, but in law school, there was a lot of what they call moot court where you go and pretend you're in kind of in this, uh, you know, in a court setting and you're litigating and that ability to not only, uh, make your case, but anticipate what the other side is going to, you know, say against you, that type of stuff is really valuable. And again, when you're free from the shackles of grades or, you know, pedagogy, but all you're focused on is getting as much return on that investment, it changes the whole dynamic. And I don't think it's for everyone, um, but that's how I always looked at school. And, um, and, and, and I think that, is, that my ability to, um, to lead a large company like Shopify with 10,000 people and you know, multi-billion dollar publicly traded company that's you know, all over the world now, I think uh, an advantage that I had was, um, was that education. Truly. That's really interesting. And, and the level of maturity you have at that age to, to, to work that out. Cause most people aren't thinking like that. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, you know, we don't, I don't know how, how depth we're going to get uh, in, in terms of, you know, uh, I'm not sure how vulnerable you want me to get here, but I will tell you that there's nothing in the world I think forces you to grow up uh, than, you know, than family trauma. And, and I had my share of that. My, my dad was around and he wasn't around and I was forced to support the family when I was 17. Um, that, that, that tends to force you to grow up really, really quickly. And, and, and in many ways, I think that, you know, I've, I've heard some of your guests talk about this uh, previously in the podcast, but, you know, we often think that um, it's the, I think a lot of us tr- shy away from talking about some of our trauma whether it's multi-generational trauma or trauma that happened to ourselves because we don't feel like talking about it. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to show that type of vulnerability. But I, I think the people that I look up to that I admire the most, um, much of their strength came from the worst times of their life, not from the best times. Thank you for sharing. Um, uh, I know that, yeah, like, yeah, it's so important, I think, as a founder and an entrepreneur to have this level of self-awareness and because so so often everything that we're doing we're actually not really conscious why we're doing it but there's there's reasons you know things that have affected you as you've grown up your childhood all these different things that they kind of shape who you are today and if you're not consciously aware of that that deep work um, is really powerful if you can kind of realize why you're doing it and 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 the truth is you really only start to do that you know i mean i guess we're on the topic now so let's open the pandora's box that's where therapy plays a huge role and coaching and great mentorship and being introspective. All those things really help. I think that once you begin to be, you know, um, I've always been pretty much the shortest kid in all of my classes. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm five foot four, five foot five on a good day. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm not super short, but I'm shorter than the average, you know, the average person. And it was only in the last you know, couple of years that I began to realize, you know, how did that affect me growing up? Walking into the schoolyard, being the smallest kid, going to 
you know, high school in South Florida with 6,000 or 5,000 people uh, immigrating from Canada, uh, you know, how did that affect me? And, and I, we don't need to spend any particular time on, 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 on that, but, but I, now that I'm beginning to be more self-aware about, Hey, all those different things, they have sort of, they, they, in aggregate, they make me who I am. And rather than not want to think about, you know, what it was like to be five years old or eight years old or 15 years old watching the schoolyard as the smallest kid. I actually, I, I want to think about that more. I want to talk about that with my therapist. I want to talk about that with my coach because I think those are the building blocks that, that, that have created my personality, my, the way that I, I go about my life. And one of the, you know, just sort of tying this back to entrepreneurship generally, one of the great new trends, I think, and I say it's a trend because it may not last, but it certainly feels like it's in the air right now, is that I think more entrepreneurs are beginning to talk about mental health and therapy and their own, you know, their own issues. And rather than that be seen as um, weakness, I think it actually more and more is seen as strength. And I think that's a very, very good thing. Yeah, I agree. Um, look, I'm conscious of your time. I, we have to ask the president of Shopify about that journey and e-commerce, what's happening now. So if it's okay with you, let's keep moving. Totally. Um, so can you tell me about that first conversation with Toby? So how did you meet him and then that conversation to join? So I moved to Ottawa in 2005. I finished undergrad. I'd built, I'd built a small t-shirt business selling t-shirts to universities in undergrad in Montreal. And a mentor of mine convinced me to go to law school, as I mentioned, to become a better entrepreneur. This particular mentor was teaching law at the University of Ottawa for that year. He's a, you know, he's a senior partner in a big law firm. But in 2005, he decided he wanted to teach law for the year. And he was teaching law at the University of Ottawa. And so I applied to one school, University of Ottawa, and I got it. And so I was really lucky. Not sure how I got in, but somehow I was accepted. And so I moved to Ottawa and I moved to the city in 05. I had no friends, had no family, never even been to the city. And I, I had began to realize like you, I think that, um, and I, I, I'm not actually sure you would, you would say this the same way, Nathan, but, but I've always believed that my tribe has been entrepreneurs, that I connect best with entrepreneurs. I don't know why we don't have to be in the same industry. They can be, you know, in the apparel industry or they can be in tech or they can be in you know, not-for-profit, but there's something about entrepreneurs that I just connect with. And so when I moved here and had no friends and wanted to make friends, I just asked where the entrepreneurs were. And I was directed to a coffee shop um, in, in Ottawa. And I was told a bunch of really great entrepreneurs hang out there every Friday night. And so I just showed up. And it was a bunch of entrepreneurs, some great entrepreneurs, uh, you know, and, and, and I just connected well with Toby. He's, he was cerebral. He was brilliant. He was, and he was just transitioning from building a snowboard business to building a software business. He had moved here from Germany a couple of years earlier. He wanted to make some money. He couldn't get a job because he was a new immigrant to Canada from Germany, um, but he knew he can start a business. And so he wanted to sell snowboards on the internet. And when he moved here, and this is 2004 or so, when he started this business, snowboard business, there were really two ways to sell a product on the internet. There was either the marketplace model where you sold on eBay, which was inexpensive, but did not allow you to build your own business, or you were, you can build your own on, you, you can, you know, use one of these enterprise e-commerce systems. I think like there was like OS commerce, there was a bunch of these, you know, IBM had one. Um, this is, I think even before Magento, there was like ATG and Hybris these pieces of enterprise software would allow you to build an online store, but they were prohibitively expensive. I mean, some of them would cost a million dollars. So he was frustrated with these options. 
and like a great founder, great entrepreneur, you don't like the options, generate new ones. And so his, his version of that was he would write a piece of software to sell these snowboards. And very quickly, he realized that other people may want to use the software to sell their own products. And so he stopped selling snowboards and focused on the software. And that's around the time that I met him. And I told him I had this t-shirt business in, in college. I was now in law school. I needed to sort of migrate this business from being a wholesale, very much in-person B2B business to really more of a retail business that can run, you know, just while I was in class. And uh, he said, you should use Shopify. And so I did. I started using Shopify. And I would still see Toby every couple of, of weeks at this meetup. And I was a, I was a merchant. And, and, you know, he'll tell the story that I was a bit of a pain in the butt, that I would call him and ask him for discounts. And I would ask him for new features. And I would just, I was really, um, I was a difficult merchant for him. And, but we became close. And, and one of the things we, 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 we have today that we always had was, we are very different. I am, you know, I'm very much out there. I'm very extroverted. I'm very you know, on the sort of the, the external side of the business. He's, he's really the greatest product mind I've ever encountered. He's brilliant. He's a developer, uh, a lot more introverted than me, although he balances extroversion as well. But we just kind of like, we had this great mutual respect for each other's skill sets. And so I finished uh, law school and business. I did a joint law MBA. I finished law school and business school. And then uh, I called Toby when I was practicing law, as I mentioned earlier. And I said, I hate law but I would love to come and help you. And I think there were three other engineers at the time, uh, you and these others uh, build a business and you guys are the engineers. You're the smart people building product. Let me come and figure out a way to commercialize this thing. I will do anything I need to do. I will help with, you know, we didn't have a CFO. We didn't have a chief marketing officer. Let me take care of all the business stuff that you just don't want to do. And I'm, so I moved from Toronto um, in 2009 to, uh, to, to Ottawa and uh, started as, sort of this jack of all trades inside of Shopify. Um, and that was about 12 or 13 years ago. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. At what point in time did you know that Shopify had the potential that it's kind of seen? Like I remember in the early days, you brought on Tim Ferriss as an angel investor. I remember seeing the Shopify build a business competitions, but that was like, that was 2013, 2014, 2015, like, yeah. That was even earlier, actually. The build, the first build a business competition, uh, started um, in 2010. And actually, a, a mutual friend, uh, Greta Von Rael, was one of the first winners of. I know you guys work a lot with Greta. Uh, that's what, Greta was one of the first winners. I think it was Skinny Me Tea was her first was was uh, was one of her first businesses, and she won. Um, I knew Shopify would be. I knew Shopify was something really special even before I joined Shopify. I remember sitting in tax law class while I was in law school and 
Uh, we didn't have the ching sound that we now have. If any anyone who's listening as a Shopify merchant, you'll know that 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 amazing and now hopefully I, somewhat iconic ching sound. Getting your getting that order, but I remember sitting in tax law class and seeing orders coming in, and I just remember thinking, I think I'm competing with Walmart. Like I have no experience re with retail. I don't have that much money. I'm 21 or 22 years old, and I'm competing with Walmart because of this magic piece of software. And that's what it felt like. It felt like magic. And, and so I wanted to join Shopify because one, I wanted more people to have that same experience. But two, you know, I, I, we started the interview by talking about that I still think entrepreneurship is inaccessible. It was really inaccessible back in 2010. I mean, it was really unique. In fact, the reason that we launched the Build a Business competition. The reason we connected with people like, you know, Gary Vee and Tim Ferriss and Damon John and, and people that are still big parts of, of my life and, and also Shopify as a Seth Godin, uh, Richard Branson. The reason we, 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 we curated this group of people around this Build a Business competition was we believed that most people would start businesses if they felt that it was accessible to them. And this Build a Business competition, for those that don't know, it was a very simple promotion. It was start a business on Shopify January 1st, brand new business. The store with the highest sales after six months would win $100,000 or would win a week with us uh, with, uh, on Necker Island, which is Richard Branson's Island, or which I think, I think, I believe Greta uh, won that competition. And I think she, I believe she came with us to Necker Island, but there would be these things that you would win. And so we were effectively incentivizing you to, to take that idea, that crazy thought you had in the shower in the morning and actually commercializing it. And over, over the years, I think it became one of the largest entrepreneurship competitions on the planet. We don't do it anymore. Um, maybe we should, uh, we, we should kick it back up. But the idea was we want more people to participate. And if you think about, you know, Shopify in 2010, which effectively was an e-commerce provider, it made it really easy to build an online store versus Shopify today. Today, we have millions of stores on the platform. About 10% of all e-commerce in the US, for example, goes through Shopify. Every 30 seconds or so, a brand new entrepreneur gets their very first sale on Shopify. And in terms of economic value um, or economic impact, in 2021 alone, there was about $440 billion worth of economic value created through the Shopify merchant base and ecosystem. And our goal today, as it was then, is we want to be the entrepreneurship company. We're a lot closer now than we were then. But this idea that making it more accessible, making it easier is made, is, is that is my life's work. That's Shopify's mission. And now that we're seeing companies like, you know, Gymshark or Allbirds and Figs that recently went public, um, these companies that were started on Shopify, in the case of Ben Francis of Gymshark or, you know, in his dorm room, uh, or the case of Figs or Allbirds, you know, and some coffee shop around their mom's kitchen table, the fact they're now category leaders and they've grown from this idea to multi-billion dollar companies on Shopify is incredibly rewarding to us. Yeah, look, it's such a great platform. It's for me, amongst my peers, it's it's the go-to platform for e-commerce. Oh, thank you for saying that. It means a lot. It's just really easy. Like my my partner has a, an e-commerce business, this one here, right? Like a time-marked water bottle, health-ish. Um, and uh, like she set up the store and like, it's, it's really easy. It, it makes it so easy to build a website, get going. Yeah. It's sort of, it's sort of, you know, this idea, if you sort of go back a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, 50 years ago, um, the amount of work and effort your partner would have to go through to build a business 
you know, there'd have to be loans and maybe mortgages on your home. There would have to be employees or have to be rent and leasehold improvements and building manufacturing plants. That's not the case anymore. And that, that is, that is really cool. And by the way, it's only getting easier and easier over time. And that's not to say that entrepreneurship or business creation is easy. It's not. I mean, most businesses will fail, but the chips are now stacked far more on the side of entrepreneur and entrepreneurship than ever before. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'd love to talk about e-commerce now because I agree it's it's easier than ever to start a business, start an e-commerce store thanks to a platform like Shopify. Um, but then there's the flip side around kind of co- like competition. More competition now, of course. Barrett entry is lower, more people participate. So what are the biggest mistakes you see brands making new new entrants to the space, new new businesses, new e-com brands, new e-com stores making in 2022? First of all, I don't think um, modern retail, especially digital modern retail, is zero sum. I, I, I think there is room in the market. Here's the cool part. Um, I, I think of build business today. Uh, I remember years ago, do you remember um, Boosted Boards? They were this motorized skateboard. I remember Boosted Board. I don't think they're around anymore, but I have I actually have a Boosted Board in, in my garage and I, I love it. It's a wonderful product, but I think, they went, I think they shut down. But I remember seeing Boosted Board created. Um, I was like, huh, this is a really, it was a Shopify store early on. I was like, this is a really niche product. And then I thought about it, I was like, huh, you know, if you went to sell Boosted Board in sort of a traditional model or traditional, you know, retail business in a city uh, like Ottawa or, you know, anywhere, any city in Canada or any city around the world, there's a very slim, you know, Venn diagram overlap of who's going to, who cares so much about technology and who loves skateboarding. Like the Venn diagram overlap is very small. And so in a city of a million people or 5 million people, it's probably only, you know, a couple dozen people who may want to ride a motorized skateboard. But when you open up the TAM or the total addressable market, and you, you begin to think about selling to a global audience, well, even if it's only a couple percentage points, or even if it's a couple basis points, uh, you know, let's say it's, it's 0.1% uh, of people want a motorized skateboard. Well, on the internet, that's a lot of people. And I, so the first thing I think about that, that uh, you know, that, that entrepreneurs make a mistake is, is avoid the zero-sum thinking. Um, I, as I mentioned, I built my first online store in like 2006. I had not built an online store for a while and I wanted to understand what it was like to build an online store today. And so in October, 2021, sort of mid pandemic, a buddy of mine and I got together and his, uh, he's a tea guy. And I was like, I, I, I love drinking great green, especially green tea. And I really like really good green tea, well curated green tea and with great product, great accessories. So we built, uh, we started a Shopify store on our own. That's called firebellytea.com. And cause I want to understand it. And everyone that I mentioned that to, they're like, yeah, you know, it's cool. You're doing this, but just, you know, there's a ton of tea companies like, well, our tea is a little different. Our tea is like, you know, it's very curated. We're designing our products ourselves. We're going after sort of a very different demographic. We want sort of, we're trying to convert coffee drinkers into tea drinkers, as opposed to, you know, if you think about the, the, the market as a pie, we're not trying to grow our piece of the pie. We're trying to grow the pie itself. And so I think the zero sum thinking really does um, needs, need, we need to move away from that. We need to think more positive sum that there's room for all types of things. So if you're selling, I don't know, some sort of really niche product in a traditional business model, 
you're probably not going to sell very much. But on the internet, there's a massive, massive community of that. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say that um, is you can find your community of potential um, customers, potential fans, potential, you know, there's that amazing blog post called uh, 1000 True Fans. I love that blog post. Um, I, I think, uh, I forgot who wrote it, Kelly, I think. Um, it's an amazing... It's an amazing blog post because it tells you that like, if you have a thousand people that love your podcast or love your brand or love your product, love your restaurant, you're going to be okay. And finding those, those thousand true fans is easier in a digital modern uh, model. So that's the second. That's the, uh, so on that note, I think you can find your, your community much earlier on of customers even before you start selling. So you can go into you know, some subreddit, uh, the sort of the anti-coffee subreddit, and you can begin talking about, hey, I'm about to build a tea company and I really would love to know what you guys think. And then, you know, hey, like if you want, send me your address, here's my email address and I'll send you some free tea, would love some feedback. That means that by the time you launch your business, you go back to that subreddit, you go back to that Facebook group, go back to that Instagram hashtag and you say, hey, I just launched. And now all of a sudden you have people that are following your story. I think in the same way, you can also create a community for yourself because entrepreneurship for all its merits is somewhat lonely. You can also create a community for yourself. And I think founder does this really well of people that want to help you, that want to give you advice. I think the other thing that is really important uh, is whereas in previous business creation cycles, capital was the most important factor. The more money you had, the more money you can spend, the more sales you got, the bigger the business got, therefore you got more money, therefore you can spend more. It was just this cycle of uh, this flywheel that more capital equals more sales equals more capital. And, and eventually you grow bigger than others. I don't think capital today is the most important factor or vector. I think today being really resourceful, being really creative. I mean, there's no better example than you see some of these folks like Mr. Beast um, on, on YouTube. Yeah. Now, you know, there's that, that team is spending millions of dollars on videos, but in the early days, of, you know, Jimmy making videos, he wasn't spending very much. I mean, he was sitting in his, you know, sitting in his office, sitting in his home, you know, in his, in his bedroom. So, yeah, same thing with Ben Francis at Gymshark, right? Ben didn't start with this massive influencer program. He just started sending free t-shirts to personal trainers around the UK and they would like them. And so they would post about them. And, and so that I think is really, really amazing. And I think now specifically that things like return on ad spend is becoming more expensive on platforms um, like social media platforms. I think that's okay. I think it forces all of us to be a lot more creative. And, you know, going back to our mutual friend, Greta, I remember seeing that whole skinny me tea phenomenon. And that was really about, you know, um, uh, tea that actually also, uh, acted as a catalyst for weight loss. And so she wasn't competing with any of the other tea companies. She basically created her own category. She created her own category and it didn't cost her any money to create that category. That I think is, is you know, something that people should keep in mind today. Awesome. Um, love to talk about investing. Uh, so you've had a really good run as an angel investor. I'd love to hear kind of what are the qualities, what are the things that you look for in founders and entrepreneurs that you invest in? But then also, what are some of the red flags? I don't know if I'm a great angel investor. Um, I like to angel invest because I think anyone that's had any success whatsoever, whether it's financial or it's, I don't know, some success they've had, I think the entrepreneurial community, the global one, I mean, you know, you and I had just met, but you and I are part of the same, you know, 
community. We care about founders. We care about entrepreneurs. And so I think anyone that's had any success owes it to, to, the, to the community to pay it forward. If you can pay it forward with your time, that's great. If you can do it with money and capital, that's great too. I don't have that much time. And so I, I, the way that I play, pay it forward is I find as much time as I can, but, but I can pay it forward with some money. And so um, my wife and I began to angel invest together as a team I don't know, four or five years ago. We have now invested in probably 50 companies, 50 startups. And pretty much we do it one of, for one of two reasons. Either we love the product. So I'm not sure, uh, have you heard of the company Skip the Dishes? Um, so it's sort of an Uber Eats competitor or was an Uber Eats competitor here in North America. Um, my wife and I were using it. We loved it. She was using it like every couple of days. And so at some point she's like, this is a great product. I really like, this is before Uber Eats came about um, or they were just they were sort of just launching. And she's like, I love the product. Let's, 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 let's send an email over to the founders. And we did, we emailed Josh Samer, who's the founder of, uh, of Skip the Dishes. And we said, look, we don't know how we can be helpful, but we want to vote with our wallets for more Skip the Dishes to exist and for more of you to exist. And so, you know, that one ended up getting acquired and, and that was a, a good return. But some of the others, you know, don't have that same return. But, but we, number one, look for, are we using the product already? Do we like the product? Is it something that we would be proud to say, you know, we are humble to, to invest in? The second thing is, I mean, this is not going to be that surprising, but you back the jockey, not the horse. And a lot of the businesses that we've, we've invested in as a, you know, as, as, as small time angel investors, they have changed their business model a lot. They've changed their product. They've changed how they sell, how they market, what they actually, what the value they deliver uh, might be. But we bet on these founders that have incredible conviction. And that has led us, I think, to some, do some really, really good investments. The red flag, we don't want to participate in sort of these, you know, big party rounds where it feels like it's, it's, it feels like it's a party. Uh, we want investors, we want founders, uh, we want to back founders that we think are so obsessed with the problem set that, you know, that's their life's work. Um, and they don't want to play founder or play entrepreneur. They really just want to do the work. And you can tell that by a couple different, you know, different ways. You can tell it by how they court you. I mean, I want to see some basic information, but if you're sending me a 50 or 60 page deck, it means you spend too much time on the deck. I want you to spend time on your business. I want you to spend time on hiring and, and personal growth and learning and being curious. Those are sort of the things I think that work well for us. And those aren't things I think that are particularly uh, profound. It just works for us. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I could talk to you all day, Harley, conscious of your time. We're going to move to the hot seat. I've got a few just rapid fire questions for you and then we'll work towards wrapping up. Um, if you could go back to your first day in business and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be and why? Get really, really comfortable with being uncomfortable. I, um, that's something that I had to learn the hard way. I, I really did avoid things that made me uncomfortable. I think part of the reason that I built so many t-shirt businesses is because I thought actually, like I, I knew a little bit about t-shirts. And so I just kept like, there were a bunch of different iterations of the same product, which were t-shirts. I mean, one was wholesale and promotional products. One was retail and, and licensed t-shirts, but they were all t-shirts. And I think if I would have stuck with on that path, I never would have had the opportunity to help build, you know, what is now, you know, uh, one of the largest companies in the country, one of the largest technology companies on the planet. Um, but actually by putting myself in a position of, um, 
uncertainty and, and being uncomfortable, it forced me to get really good understanding technology and software. And, and, you know, I'll never write a code because there's people much better at me than writing code, but I had to understand the business of Shopify really well in order for me to be a leader at Shopify. Uh, I don't, I do not think that was what, I don't think I had that innately in me. I was curious, but I went, I, I would take the comfortable route. And I actually think that that the magic really happens when you step outside that 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 area, um, which is also why I think so many people end up starting businesses, with co-founders. I'm talking about with friends of theirs, high school friends, you know, friends they meet in college or afterwards, or childhood friends. It's because it's comfortable. However, most of your friends, especially your your closest friends that you're going to start a business with, um, they're probably kind of like you because they're your friends and you have a lot in common. Your Venn diagrams overlap in terms of interests and backgrounds. Maybe you grew up in the same place. Maybe you went to the same school. Um, I actually think a far better way to choose a co-founder or a business partner is to find someone who's nothing like you. And, you know, just using the academic example, if you're in law school, don't go start a business with someone else in law school. Walk across the campus and start a business with someone in engineering or someone in arts or someone in political science. Um, and, and, and I think that's a, you know, I think that's a really, really important, um, for me, that was a really important lesson. Mm, great insight. Um, when is work fulfilling? Most of the time. I mean, you know, there are some challenges of, of being the president of a big public company. Um, there's governance and there's stuff that you have to do, but generally what I, uh, Shopify is most fulfilling to me when I remember our mission, which is that, Every 30 seconds, a new entrepreneur is getting there for sale and that may change their life. And it's not because they're going to make a lot of money or it's not because they're going to be the next Allbirds or Kylie Cosmetics or Fashion Nova or any of these great businesses that, you know, I've had a, uh, you know, I've had a front row seat and watched them build. It's because for many of these people, that first sale and that those subsequent sales, that may be the difference of them being independent or not. And that's where Shopify is most fulfilling to me. Yeah. Amazing. Um, last question. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I remember standing uh, on the podium at the New York Stock Exchange, uh, May 2015. So actually almost seven years ago to the day when we went public. And I remember thinking to myself, this is where Henry Ford rang the bell when he took you know, his company public. And I'm not sure it's Henry Ford in particular, but I would love to have dinner with someone who built a company, a large company, 50, 100, 200 years ago. I mean, it's interesting. I, I'm lucky now that I get to meet so many great entrepreneurs and my position allows me to, you know, to get in touch with these amazing people. I've got a chance to spend time with, you know, Richard Branson and, and Seth Godin. These are huge, you know, I mean, Seth is, is one of my mentors and he's a huge part of my life and someone I so admire for a lot more reasons in business. I mean, he's, he's a wonderful human being, but I'd love to go back, you know, 50 or hundred years or 200 years and, and ask those entrepreneurs what it was like, because I suspect that it was far more difficult to build a company from nothing in those days. And I, I am, um, I wouldn't say I'm a student, but I'm deeply interested in the stories of entrepreneurship. I think those are such interesting things because I think more than anyone, entrepreneurs um, nudge the world in a different direction. We don't necessarily, you know, we're not going to change things 90 degrees or 90, but we just sort of nudge them two degrees here and two degrees there. And, and, and so um, it would probably be an entrepreneur that grew up a long time ago. Awesome. Well, Harley, thank you so much for your time. This was 
awesome. Like you, you're incredible. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much. It's uh, it's great to be on the show, Nathan. And thank you so much for everything you and founder does for, you know, inspiring more people to become founders. Um, we're all part of that founder club and it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a weird club. It's, it's a quirky club. Uh, it's, it's full of anxiety and sometimes, you know, even rough, rough times. Um, but if you love it, there is nothing in the world like, like being a founder and, and, and being an entrepreneur. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic And I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.